0: This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu.
1: I'm Alan Collada and I will moderate the second panel uh, which follows on the first panel obviously that had a very synthetic overview of Cuba, uh, uh, US uh, scholarly and political relationships. And this panel will be directed more towards the academic exchange, the actual experiences of my colleagues here on on the uh, podium. Um, My own uh, connection to Cuba is actually both personal and professional, although fairly tangential. The personal connection is uh, comes through my godchild, uh, who is a, a Aymara uh, member of the Aymara community uh, in Bolivia, who in fact went to Cuba, trained, of course, by Cubans to become a physician. Uh, he has been uh, trained uh, in Cuba for the last eight years, uh, and has now returned to Bolivia, and he's a practicing physician in Aymara communities in the area of Lake Titicaca. Uh, so I have supported his, uh, his uh, work in Cuba, uh, although indirectly, of course, uh, flowing to his parents uh, in, in La Paz. So that's my personal connection. The professional connection I have to Cuba was as an administrator of the Center for Latin American Studies here in what has been referred to a couple of times uh, as the Golden Era. Uh, that is, in my case, uh, I was director from 1994 to 1998 when the University of Chicago did enjoy a substantial support, uh, financial support, from the MacArthur Foundation. Of course, Ford Foundation and MacArthur were two principal uh, private foundations supporting uh, Cuba-US uh, scholarly exchanges, and we enjoyed that for a number of years. Uh, and although that grant, obviously, we no longer do enjoy, nevertheless, uh, there is still a flow there is still a flow of scholars from the University of Chicago, albeit much more difficult, as has been made painfully clear here uh, over the course uh, a continuing flow and an interest. and that uh, the, the three Ps mentioned, I think, is shared by all of the people on the stage that is persistence and patience, and most especially passion. And so I won't go on any farther other than to introduce, I guess, from left. To write uh, our other panelists here, all of whom, except for Agnes, are anthrop- practicing anthropologists, but so you feel very comfortable among anthropologists uh, in any event. I go native. Yes. On the, on the far left over here, Laurie Frederick, uh, who is uh, now at, affiliated uh, with the University of Maryland in performance studies and is an uh, anthropologist from the University of Chicago, has her degree here, and did. Uh, substantial work in that golden era in Cuba. Uh, Stefan Palmier uh, in the Department of Anthropology as well, faculty member. Paul Ryer, uh, again, a, a, a former, now former graduate student uh, from the University of Chicago, Department of Anthropology, done substantial work in Cuba and is now at Mount Holyoke. And then, of course, Agnes Lugo Ortiz, who needs no uh, introduction. So uh, <laughs> So I think what we're going to do, uh, given the time, um, I, my role here is to be tough and basically to uh, have everyone uh, recount their experiences of their work in, uh, in Cuba, one way or another, their uh, the logistics, the, the prospects, uh, the outcomes, and um, I have no particular order in mind, but I suppose we can start over here. Everyone, the panelists will speak for about uh, five minutes to seven minutes, and, and then hopefully we'll open it up for a broad discussion after we do that.
2: My research in Cuba went from, it started in 1997, as we're um, talking about this was when we were getting a lot of funding into the Center for Latin American Studies and I was very lucky in that capacity. Um, the US license, we did not have an institutional license at that point, so that was really the, the stickler, was getting a license and all of us, I think, have gone through the application process for individual licenses. So with the institutional license, that made life a lot easier on this end. And I think, when I think about um, doing research in Cuba, there's there's different. Elements of it. The first, of course, is, is getting the funding and getting your license on the US side. The second, then, is getting the affiliation and the visa on the Cuban side, which is, I think, probably a lot more difficult um, depending on where you want to work than getting the license. It's a lot less straightforward, and as was was referred to earlier, it's very unpredictable. My research was I did one year in, I worked in Havana off and off a lot, um, off and on. And I did one year in Cumarillagua and in the the mountains of this Cambrai region, which is um, on the cusp of Cienfuegos and Villagnara, in that central region there. Um, I worked with a theater group and performers who who did their work with the campesinos in these rural areas. My second year, which by the way was under a Fulbright haze, so it was federal money that gave, I'm not sure if they still give money. (laughs) Um, I got one luckily that year, and that was in Guantanamo, rural Guantanamo. So I was working in based with artists in Guantanamo City, and then traveling up into the, what they call the zonas de Silencia. So these areas where there's no electricity and no um, communication, working with the campesinos there as well. So my next challenge is then, as um, Lou Perez was talking about his student, was working in these rural areas which are very, very separated in, in all sorts of capacities from Havana. And certainly a letter with a stamp is going to do you no good unless you know the guy who has the key to the archives. And your friends, and there's networking that there's a lot of networking a lot of pre research um, setup work that has to be done in order to work in these places. I was very lucky in terms of my visa. I was affiliated with the Centro de Investigacion de Armas which is um, one of the center for investigations that are very um, rampant throughout Cuba, mostly based in Havana. That group was a group of sociologists, historians, um, writers, and teatristas, people who did scientific, social scientific research on the theater. So I was very lucky to meet with these people and they supported me and affiliated me and allowed me to go out into wherever I wanted to go, which is not the usual case. I think the restrictions are becoming more and more. So they allowed me to basically just check in with them whenever I was back in Havana and I would get papers at their panels periodically and get feedback and it was a wonderful relationship. When I went into Guantanamo and Escambray, I always had to have letters. I had to have letters from the Consejo de Artes Escénicas, which is the National Theater Board, and the Center for Investigations, and a letter from the mayor of the town, and I had to carry these documents with me. Um, I was never asked for them, but I had to have them. And so these are things, you know, although people, the the letter with the stamp may or may not get you to the archives, it is important to have them once you get past whatever barrier you're trying to get past. my experience is very much in, in the countryside and working in areas where there is no tourism infrastructure, and this has all a whole another set of um, very you know basic logistical um, obstacles as tra- as the travel and getting to places and um, establishing trust with people that wouldn't otherwise know you. So basically, I did six months of preliminary field work in three separate trips before I then started a two-year stint. Um, down in Cuba. And that was, I found, essential. I don't think there's any way I could have done my research without doing that kind of preliminary work, which not everybody is able to do, obviously. Um, So, on the other end then, after you have the U.S. license and the visa and doing your field work in in these places that may or may not have an infrastructure, coming back to the United States, I've had various experiences going through the red line. In 2006, I was labeled a potential terrorist. question for about a half hour so I think all of us have we all share stories as to what it means not even getting into Cuba and doing work but what happens when we come back Um, and if you have a license of course that doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to get hassled so I see I see Cuban research in these four stages and if anybody has questions everybody probably has similar stories about the one two and four um, and then my particular expertise would be in the countryside and doing research in non um, urban, central urban areas such as Havana, South
3: and Cuba. My name is Shannon Dottie. I'm in the Department of Anthropology. Just in case you forgot, because we're all Department of Anthropology until we get to the end. But um, I wanted to start with just a, a, a provocative statement, which is that uh, the embargo is working. Um, that is that people, ideas, and money are not flowing very freely or easily uh, between Cuba and the U.S. as it stands right now. Um, But but perhaps because smuggling is one of the um, topics that I study in my own work in historical anthropology and archaeology, um, I'm also tempted to point at uh, ways in which things are flowing or can flow illicitly, uh, but I can't really do that in this um, setting. Uh, First, because I get in trouble um, to do it uh, on the record, so like many of my Cuban friends, I will talk to you um, off the record at some time uh, over a mojito. Uh, secondly, uh, because promoting uh, alternative circuits um, does not attack the defensive walls of the blockade itself, um, I don't know that uh, I want to dwell on this for too long uh, in terms of going around it and how to do research now uh, under our present conditions. It would merely prolong this um, 45-year-old um, uh, in- insanity, uh, the siege, and it supports the amazing cognitive hypocrisy of the policy, which I think has been um, pointed out very well today. But, you know, In the face of it, this policy flies uh, in the, with just utterly cognitive dissonance. It flies in the face of three you know, erstwhile uh, American values, right? Freedom of speech, uh, democracy as indexed by the freedom of movement of citizens, uh, and that perhaps most questionable American value, uh, for some of us anyway, free trade. Uh, and that's one thing that wasn't mentioned in the um, earlier discussion that I wanted to kind of put on the table to talk about is one sort of unnatural uh, marriage might be um, Laurie brought up uh, the possibility of really joining, uh, you know, academic interests in freedom and travel to Cuba uh, with more general American interests. And if there's one that might actually touch a lot of people besides um, college students wanting another place to vacation. Uh, it's trade, it's money, it's uh, market, right? And, and in fact some of the congressmen who have been active in some of these other legislative acts are representing Midwest agricultural interests, looking for an opening. Uh, that's been going on for about 10 years, these legislative efforts. So that might be an, an, an unholy union. You might want to think about um, academic freedom and, and capital. Uh, could be actually quite powerful if they were brought together. Um, and maybe we should have a discussion of how comfortable we are uh, with that. Uh, but it would be a very pragmatic, um, Clinton-esque, way of approaching the uh, present conditions. Uh, just a little bit of background on, on me um, and my relationship to Cuba. Um, at the University of Michigan, I uh, went under an amazing patron. Talk about the patronage system. There's also that, and uh, it has to be that. I'm sure Luke can speak to this. In terms of uh, mentors taking graduate students to Cuba, you have to have your, your patron, and my patron, my patron saint, is Rebecca Scott, the historian who's been going there since the um, early to mid 1970s. And so I worked in Cuba, um, in, again, that golden age of 1998 to 1999, um, interviewing and getting to know um, Cuban archaeologists, uh, but also doing a work in the archives in San San Havana and I also um, did a little bit of ethno-archaeology with a small family in the countryside outside of San Swin- Juan Swin- Swin- underneath the radar, um, to some extent. I also have some experience in academic exchange coming this way. Um, as a result of the contacts I made in Cuba, um, one of the things that really struck me when I was talking to folks was how hungry they were for dialogue and how much they wanted to know what was happening in the field outside of Cuba, is that part of the embargo is an embargo of information, and journals, uh, uh, journals have a hard time, even in the electronic age, for reaching Cuba, uh, and just the flow of information is often stunning. So I invited uh, a number of senior um, archaeologists, uh, uh, working in Cuba at the time, to the Society of American Archaeology meetings in 2002, In in Cuba, and I actually applied to the program and got funding from the program we were was talking about with SSRC, uh, and, um, and it was a very successful panel, and it led to an edited volume, um, co-edited with, with one of our um, Cuban colleagues, uh, Antonio Curet. Uh, now interestingly, the publication of that book, uh, is just, the, the ways in which the embargo works is just amazing, madness. But the publication of that book was held up for six months while a court case was pending about whether or not um, having a Cuban author in an American published uh, book uh, constituted—I can't exact—I don't remember exactly what clause it violates the law. But the idea was that this was material support uh, to to Cuba. Um, so, pending that case, our manuscript is held up. And finally, that case got shut down and got um, pulled through. And actually, the publishers have been very active in terms of this um, freedom, freedom of press and freedom of expression um, but it's been an education to, to watch that. Now since 2002 uh, I have certainly sensed a radical shift in the possibilities of Cubans coming to um, U.S. waters and the next uh, Society for American Archaeology meeting was held, held in Puerto Rico uh, last year in 2006 and my colleague at the Field Museum who unfortunately couldn't be here today Antonio Curret, um he had co-organized or he had helped me uh, create an edit volume of the first session in 2002 and he wanted to do this follow-up session with younger scholars um, and getting them to Puerto Rico and we thought everything was fine. Uh, they were given permission from Cuba for young, to go to um, Puerto Rico for the conference for another panel, uh, which by the way you should know that for um, Cuba, the senior scholars at can get cleared pretty easily. They're a little bit, a lot touchier about um, younger people going because they're considered um, a a flight risk, I guess you'd say. But what actually turned out happening is that uh, the US denied all the visas across the board uh, for all six scholars uh, to go to Puerto Rico and the session um, uh, had to be. We didn't cancel it, we sat and had a conversation about what's going on uh, politically. Um, Since then, uh, we also tried to, and this is at the same year I think that the Lhasa uh, conference also had full-scale denials uh, pieces on the U.S. side. Uh, the um, Antonio Corret, the uh, my co-editor on the first volume, we invited here uh, on a fellowship for a Tinker. He was awarded one of Tinker Fellowship where they are visiting um, faculty here for one quarter, and um, we were starting to move ahead with that. Um, Stephen Palmier was assisting me with that, and. Um, uh, Antonio decided to pull out because uh, as a result of investigations for visa approval for the Puerto Rico conference, his friends that he had stayed with previously on numerous trips to Puerto Rico, a lot of these guys had been to Puerto Rico before, had uh, people coming door to door that uh, appeared to be FBI uh, who were investigating his friends and supporters, his friends and colleagues in Puerto Rico. And in his emails to us, he simply expressed, I don't want to put my family and my friends uh, in any danger, so I'm going to decline this trip to the U.S. And we dropped the um, the visa application at that time. And part of this was actually what precipitated the entire panel. Well, what do we do now? How do we bring attention to this problem? is obviously a mounting um, uh, issue. So.
4: Okay, uh, I'm Stefan Palmier um, and uh, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about you know, what it is like for a non-citizen to go to Cuba in this country. I mean, I I've, uh, I've tried to, uh, to go to Cuba the first time to do ethnography there in uh, the mid-1980s uh, when I was still in Germany. Uh, and I had my uh, proposal for a grant from the National German Research Foundation denied because uh, I think what was then probably still a very sensible argument namely that it would be very hard to actually do ethnographic work without endangering one's informants because in the 19, you know, ever since uh, Oscar Lewis got kicked out in uh, the early 1970s, there were, I mean practically, uh, you know, the Cubans put a stop to uh, ethnographic investigations on the, on the part of foreigners and uh, one could actually sort of get people into trouble through what was called unrestricted contact with foreigners, which could lead to an accusation of ideological diversionism. So instead, I did my research my, you know, from you know, where I eventually got my PhD uh, among Cubans in Miami on Afro-Cuban religion, which has continued to be my topic. And uh, the first time I actually did go to Cuba was after the beginning of the special period in 1991 when uh, you know the country of course opened up to uh, increasingly to mass tourism. and um, and with the exception of one single stay when i was sponsored by the faculty of philosophy and history uh, of the university of miami in the winter of 93 94 i actually had been going there on tourist visa which you know are extendable for up to 3 months flying as you know shannon uh, put it uh, more or less under the radar and um, There is a way in which uh, ethnography can be done uh, to a certain extent uh, very different from historical investigations or any you know if you need access to archives nowadays you know I I did manage to get uh, access to a remarkable range of archives in the mid 1990s but uh, but that is no longer so I I just can't and as far as ethnography is concerned there still are uh, problems and uh, one of them is that um, one could still endanger uh, one's inform- informant, so there's an ethical question involved. Um, I mean, I remember um, coming, uh, that was the, probably the strangest trip that I ever took in terms of the getting in and out, because I flew, that was, in, hmm, that was in 2003, I think, I flew uh, from Canada, because I uh, previously always gone from Miami, uh, but I flew from Canada and there, uh, I arrived in Havana Airport and thought this was going to be a piece of cake, and I was uh, my my luggage was searched, not my luggage that is, but my hand luggage, my briefcase and they went through uh, you know sort of several notebooks of uh, field notes that I had there, and I was really scared of what was going to happen there uh, in the end, it was fine On the same trip I got picked up at, a, uh, at an i't not picked up, but I, I, you know, I was confronted by the police at an abacua ceremony, which is a uh, male secret society which is under, you know, a considerable amount of government surveillance and uh and they also sort of uh you know really felt bad afterwards uh, about my presence actually sort of potentially endangering people and uh but what else you know so and then coming back of course uh you know I was travelling on a general license, uh, the legitimate the legitimacy of my trip was questioned upon entry in Toronto already. So that was you know similar experiences. Lauren had, you know, sort of question for about 45 minutes uh, and then they told me well they were still not convinced about the legality of my trip and I would be hearing from the Treasury Department, which I haven't done to the state. But uh, talking about the Treasury Department, you know, I just wanted to share a brief anecdote before I close about my first trip to Cuba from the United States in 1997. Because then I thought, you know, sort of. Well, you know, I have my you know, sort of nice uh, European Community passport, and you know, I can basically just probably go. But I thought, well, maybe call up the Treasury Department, and at that time, one could actually still talk to the Office of Foreign Asset Control, uh, you know, via the telephone, which you can't anymore. And so I said to the person on on the phone, you know, what I was doing, that I was, you know, going to do research in Cuba, and that uh, my understanding is that this is legal. And, uh, and by the way you know sort of I uh, am not a citizen of the United States so is there any problem and then the, the person said well look in your passport don't you have uh, our visa stamped there I then was on an H1B visa at the University of Maryland and said yeah of course and then he said well then you're under our jurisdiction and I said well what does that mean and he said, well if we catch you coming back from Cuba without a license we will put you on the next available plane to where that passport says you're from. Basically, I mean, you know, informally me with deportation, which uh, was, uh, you know, to say the least, an impressive experience. So, so you see, I mean, on, on both sides, uh, you know, sort of, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's bound up with all kinds of, you know, deeply troubling uh, questions. And, um, you know, I guess just,
0: you know, if, but I'll just leave it at that and maybe we can come back to some of these issues. No. Well, I feel like at this point I'm going to say a lot of the same things that other people have said, but uh, I, I am one of the uh, first, I guess, one of the first beneficiaries of the Track 2 policy in the early golden, so-called Golden Age that uh, Lou Perez uh, referred to, uh, in that I was a graduate student here at the University of Chicago in the uh, mid 1990s, and uh, traveled to Cuba in 1994, was able to set up an affiliation, and was it then able in '95 to get uh, uh, a couple of good research grants to go back for a, a year and a half uh, from 1995 through '97, part into 1997. Um, and as part of that whole process, um, I applied for a US uh, OFAC license. Um, Up until then, it's my understanding that most OFAC licenses were given out for only a few weeks at a time, maybe a couple of months. And uh, So I think that there were some inconsistencies in the policy even then, even when it was relatively possible or feasible. And and I think also maybe one sees something set a pattern where the, the first few years of any administration the policy is still kind of, uh, uh, regulations and policies are being tightened or, or changed slowly. Uh, the early, early Clinton years weren't that different from the end of Bush administration. Track two really started rolling more in 94, 95. And then the early Bush years, the early Bush the second, Bush the simple, i like to call but, uh, uh, the The millennium still it was relatively easy compared to what it's been in the last three or four years. So there's some, it seems like there's a, a, a pattern of, of a lag, but in any case Clinton's track to fall of 95, I, 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 um, I got all the permissions, I had all the licenses together and then I noticed just before I left, I noticed a problem. Not only was I going to carry in all the grant money I had in cash on my person is the only way I could figure out to do it, but my grants had two, and so they were in two chunks. I didn't have the second grant yet and wouldn't for close to a year, but my license was only one round trip. It required me to work a full, you know, 40 hour week and so forth. And it wasn't set up for someone who was going to be there for over a year. And so I called Foreign Assets and I talked back when you could talk to a body, got a live person, I talked to Jeff Browner, who some of you may know, or may have known. And he said, No, no, just one trip, one trip, that's it. And I said, Well, uh, you know, how, how am I gonna get my second part of my grant? And he said, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I said, and not only that, don't I get if I'm working a normal American work week, forty hours a week, don't I get two weeks of vacation? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, uh, you know, if you need to, just just we'll we'll work it out. This this is the longest license I've ever seen. So my next step was thinking, well, maybe I should, since I'm licensed, maybe I should uh, investigate. Um, uh, Getting money wired to Cuba, which was turned out to be a bad idea. I had my my parents uh, called their local bank in New Mexico, and the next day they got a call from the Treasury Department threatening them with you know, fifty thousand dollar fine and ten years in jail and so forth. So the, the 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 even the golden age was still frustrating, and frankly it was frustrating on both sides. As as everyone has sort of mentioned or a lot of these stories. The Cuban side was also difficult. I I arrived. In a sense, the beneficiary of track two, but when one government says yes, the other one is going to say, uh, no, wait a minute. So uh, the Cubans had, they, were, they rescinded the affiliation I was supposed to have, which was at the uh, Center for African and Middle Eastern Studies. And so I affiliated instead as a graduate student, got a student visa for the next year and a half at the University of Havana. I did a, uh, took classes in a master's program in the Department of History, uh, Modern History masters in uh, Caribbean and Cuban studies. So it worked out in the end, but I think one has always sort of been, uh, again, as Lou said, every six months there's a change and I think there are just cycles of uh, response and counter response between the two governments. One needs to eventually just be comfortable working with that and, and having a backup plan and a backup to your backup plan and a backup to that plan as well because if you're persistent enough you will probably be able to figure it out. Hopefully, this current administration is now facing some headwinds and we'll see uh, some relaxing of the U.S. side uh, pretty soon.
5: My stories are less dramatic than anything that that you have said and I I don't know if it's perhaps because of my uh, Catholic schoolgirl face that I just (laughs) get into into problems, you know, or perhaps there's other reasons there. Um, Alan said that that um, that everybody's an anthropologist here except myself. Um, I, I work on literature, and and I, I really think that 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 this disciplines have uh, the, this, the discipline in which one works also uh, faces different kind of problems uh, in front of this intractability that is, that is the environment. I started working on, on Cuban material for my for my PhD, um, and I was I wrote a, a dissertation on the relationship between biographical writing and, and national, the formation of national identity in Cuba during the 19th century. Um, and I was able to do that dissertation without having to travel to Cuba, no? uh, just with pure uh, li- uh, library, uh, library material no? from, from the university where I was studying. So I think that that, that at that time, uh, literary studies was still very much in the model of structuralism, post-structuralism, deconstruction, very kind of like textually centered and the expectation that in order to do uh, uh, a textual analysis, the expectation that you will uh, you will uh, need to do fieldwork or go abroad was not part of your disciplinary training. You no. Know? Um, so uh, when I went to Cuba, basically I, I wrote my dissertation and managed to write actually a book that came out from that dissertation without having to go to Cuba. You no. Know? Now there has been, there was a shift in in, in, in literary studies. I think. Um, in the humanities I would say in the late 80s the wane of the construction, uh, the, the, the kind of complication the, the emergence of cultural studies and the idea that, that you can't study literature uh, or, or perhaps you still can but there was kind of like a different expectation that also literary study required archival research that we needed to kind of like put literary texts in communication with you know other kind of like material that was not felt a necessity before. So between that and I think the opening, the, the emergence of certain forms of interdisciplinary work and transdisciplinary work um, connected to literary studies at the time, I started working on, uh, interested in, in visual material and art history. And I'm, that is the project that I'm working on right now. It's a book on the cultures of slavery. And what I'm looking at is about the, 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 the questions of subjectivity as these are manifested both in literary text but also in visual material. Now, the visual material is in Cuba, and uh, all the material concerning visual material, the archive, the archive to kind of like dig out, you know, the meaning of these works is in Cuba. So I go to Cuba actually in the in the early 90s for the first time after having written a dissertation on Cuba without having had needed needed to go to Cuba. So I think that for in still in literary studies one can do those kind of things, and perhaps the agony is a, is of a different sort, ethical, political more than, than, than the pressure that like you cannot do it uh, if you if you travel um, uh, so I go in the early in the early 90s and I just want to just tell you my first my, the primal scene of my research in Cuba just like an anecdote um, I go there and I thought that I could take my American Express checks <laughs> okay. so there with my American Express checks huh? <laughs> and what do I learn two days after I'm there is that American Express yeah.
4: checks cannot be no, used in Cuba. Oh my God, I have a ticket for six weeks of research here and
5: I don't have money. And I have to say that I want, and again as Shannon there's names that we cannot name because a lot of the, 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 the work that we can do in Cuba I feel that that is that is patient, persistence, passion. And I will say that there's an intangible that has to do with inter-human, human, human interactions. Uh, uh, passion, passion is a sense of, of personal commitment, you no? Know? And again, I don't know if it's because of my school, my Catholic girls' <laughs> face, but I really have extraordinary friends in Cuba that have chimed in when time has been needed. Uh, starting with this primal scene of not having money. I like, go oh, you know, Ex-friend, this friend tells me, don't worry Agnes, this is, the, this is the peak of the special period, this is 1993. There's no food. There's no food for anyone in Cuba. And they tell me, don't worry about it. You are coming here, you're going to do your research. And you remember they the me gain They just like, there was barely any food. So they would just like get rice and put extra water and excess of water so that they could just like make it more but they would just reduce the, the nutrients in it, they said, don't worry, we can do that, and you're going to do your research here. And thankfully, through some uh, kind of like subterfuges, I managed to, to catch the uh, check uh, checks that you know, another friend of mine told me, no, 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 put a sadness. Cuba is not lose those dollars. Cuba is not lose those dollars. But what I was completely moved at that moment is that all of a sudden I have established this friendly relationship with people that weren't really to go to bed, to allow me to do my research. Then after that I didn't go for many years to Cuba and then I've gone back again most recently because I'm kind of like taking on this project again. And I have to say that I don't know if it's because of those kind of like foundational moments, but every time I go there, I've been there, yes, there's the bureaucracy and there's the dinosaurs that just feel that they, they have their territories in this office and you're not gonna use it, but there's these pockets of solidarity that have worked very well for me. And I don't have a tragic story to tell, even though there's a tragedy, which is the ironic thing. So, I mean, I will leave it there, just thought that perhaps I should also bring this in because since that there's these contingencies and these cracks that also take place, and it's within those contingencies and tracks that sometimes what's work can be done.
1: But that was an equally dramatic story, if not uh, I think it also points up the importance of informal flows as well, Uh, as much as these bureaucratized exchanges. I mean, I think that's what I experienced in my first trip and my only, regrettably, trip to Cuba as director of the center here. I waited for six months to get a specific license that eventually was granted and uh, again in that golden era, it wasn't so golden as Paul mentioned, there were a lot of problems on both ends, uh, moving around the country and getting there and then uh, again, uh, you know, I had the FBI come by and say, well what was it you were really doing there, The typical thing and of course we all ignored that here and I must say the University of Chicago uh, comported itself well in terms of uh, backing those people down and I think that is important. Uh, when that happens, because this is very arbitrary. It's all arbitrary in many respects, and uh, it isn't, uh, there may be an evil genius out there, but uh, there's a lot of this petty stuff going on on on, on this site as well. In any event, with that, um, thank you very much for everyone was very succinct, brief, and gave kind of a sense of what it's like to do research or try to do research uh, in Cuba. And I guess what we should do is, if there's any questions or commentary uh, from everyone here, uh, either address it to, to panels or, or to express your own uh, experience to add to, to, to this knowledge base. would be great. Yes? Hi. Thank you very
6: much. I um, My name is Joan Pangly and I'm a research assistant professor at the University of Illinois School of Public Health. And I've been traveling back and forth to Cuba since 2000, year 2000 actually. And being in the medical sciences rather than the, well, well, public health is a social science, but I think it's seen more and treated more as as a medical science. And so I would support the um, proposition that there is variation in the disciplines in terms of the kinds of challenges and support and opportunities. My husband and I have really, don't have a dramatic story to tell in terms of, of challenges and we've always been sponsored by clinical and public health folks there and given the fact that Cuba really is an example and as Mr. Smith pointed out, we, there's a lot to be learned from Cuba as in other, other countries. I think the opportunity for public health folks and medical folks to bring home the success stories of what's happened in Cuba with the health system and other aspects of the social system, there is something that they want us to be there and they, they facilitate and they encourage and just pull out all the stops just to support what's needed to get manuscripts written and to get the word out. So I just wanted to share that, um, that experience. If you had any questions of me specifically, mm-hmm. I would answer, but I, it was a very different uh, experience
3: another commentary actually about disciplinary differences, which I also agree with. I originally thought that I might be here to represent science on this very uh, social science-y uh, panel. Although if you know my work, that's kind of funny because as archaeologists go, I'm not very science-y. However, um, archaeology, uh, but I think also a lot of the field sciences, uh, biology, uh, ecology, uh, geology, they all require equipment. Uh, They require often um, team support, staffing, and doing research uh, in Cuba uh, with the Treasury rules is nearly impossible now that they're being very tightly enforced. Uh, Even when you get the license, you are still prohibited from spending more than, I think is the latest $167 a day. Um, But if... The expectation, I mean, in order to get your licenses there, you have to have a collaborative project with Cuban researchers established. They have the expectation that you're going to pay their staff, not that you, the rich American, are going to show up and have all of them work for you for free, right? Which is some kind of horrendous echo of, um, you know, 19th century American plantation economies for them. So, it's extraordinarily difficult, and I have to launch true field projects now in Cuba. And I have anecdotes of friends who in the last six months have been in, uh, invest, investigated by Treasury precisely for this, for bringing in money for uh, beyond the limits in order to pay for that. The other thing you should know is about equipment. It's now extremely difficult to bring laptops and uh, just really basic equipment for research. You can, it's very hard to bring laptops or uh, uh, digital cameras, or never mind specialized equipment that as an archeologist I would use, like a laser theodolite, or. Um, surveying equipment. Uh, So it's really shut down the kind of field sciences and large projects. And there are um, colleagues at the Field Museum in uh, both biology uh, and in archaeology who similarly their projects have been stymied and cut off. The difficulty for bringing
6: in the laptops and all this on the side. Yes, because they're considered yeah.
3: uh, bartered materials. Uh, that, then, in other words, if you leave them there for any time period whatsoever, or if there's a possibility that you're going to leave them there, you're contributing to the Cuban economy. And and also, I think there might be a clause about sharing technology.
1: It's a technology yeah. thing as well. It's, it's technology, Iran is yeah. the same things that Iran yeah. impossible it's... to get laptops in, even though they're not exactly the most powerful right. things yeah. in the I world. Don't... But that's what they're considered. They're uh, banned technology. Uh,
6: so. See, that's so interesting.
1: I never had any problems. Mm. You've never had any problems. Well, <coughs> <coughs> you might it, if you come might. back. <laughs> as Mr. Preacher capricious, so yeah. Yeah. just be prepared mm. next time. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah, the last time I was there was
1: 2004.
3: Mm.
2: I was I put a computer down in 2006 for a friend of mine. I a laptop, and basically, what through email we were trying to figure out how how it was best to do that because she was, you know, she's a a respected intellectual in Cuba and whatnot. We're like, well, should we have a letter? Should we do this? Should we should do that? And in the end, she asked people around and said, well, she emailed me, so this was on the email as well. Um, just say that it broke, if they asked, that it broke while you were down there. And so that's what we ended up doing, and nobody asked, you know, I, it was, but it was me individually. I think if you've been with the group or if you had some sort of different project, you have a lot of equipment that's different. But an individual person coming in with one laptop—I didn't bring mine. I just brought that one, mm-hmm. and then I left it there, and there was no problem. But the backup story was that it broke. Whether I might have been hassled if I had been questioned—that's totally possible. You know, you never know. It's part of the. So that's the story world.
1: for researchers to always have backup stories—the <laughs> backstory, <backup> <laughs> <laughs> the real and the unreal. Okay, well, why that was
2: 2006. <laughs> that was.
5: But there is this issue also that if, they, if in, in the Cuban authorities in the airport feel that you're bringing that mm-hmm. as a present for someone, you have to pay some. You have had that experience on tax. taxes. Tax, tax, yeah, tax. You
4: have to pay 100% tax mm-hmm. on the Cuban side mm-hmm. on, on, on presents if you, if you declare them as such. Mm-hmm. And if you know, I, I think if you bring the electronics in, they'll make you sign something that you'll probably take them back. Take it It's back. like a visa for the other mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's. Complicated on both ends, and you know the the controls in Miami are not stringent. I mean, I've I've never had uh, anybody look through my baggage in Miami leaving the United States, but uh, but it could happen.
2: On the point of entry, Chicago, I get searched every time, and they have to call the supervisor down and look at my license and look at the. It just Mm -hmm. depends. I've never. Miami they're
4: so busy they can't. And and they know what it's you know, they they know yeah. what a license looks like, you know, and what you know what kind of you know, people who carry such licenses are and you know, so it might make might make it easier. Okay. Very right, to, to, you know, to is
7: experience.
0: Exactly come through Chicago,
7: come through Houston, you're an oddity. That's where come from, yeah, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first couple of times when a suspended price in Miami uh, when we go through Nassau, oh, and it was hell. Mm-hmm. Because they just assumed that you're traveling over to third country to and then it was legal. And you I know was legal. And I would say they put a license and they're traveling with a general license. They had no
4: idea. Yeah. Frontline people.
2: to get questioned, and I kind of, I each, you know, the potential terrorist thing was a new one. That was that was the latest. And so, as long as you're legal, I think that you know, for me being legal and going in, I think, well, okay, let's see what they're going to hit me with. And I learned about the policy, changes in the policy, at least on the U.S. side, through how I get treated when I. You're very <laughs> medicine, but it's
7: more legal, you
4: Yeah, and the additional, maybe the other tip is, you know, if uh, anybody can go on an institutional license, it's the better deal. Because, uh, it, I mean, the, the purpose of the individual travelers, you know, uh, going to Cuba cannot be questioned in the same way that if you go on a general license where you have no paperwork whatsoever. All you sign is a travel affidavit that you're going to do, for example, full-time research with a high likelihood of publication. That's, and that's, you know, that you deposit with the travel agent basically, so, so once you enter, uh, technically uh, anybody could question the legitimacy of your trip, they could just basically say, well, we saw you at the beach, <laughs> hang out uh, and, you know, not do full time research.
3: You're doing ethnography of the beach.
4: Right? Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. And the people who travel to the back and forth with Miami, they do have a strategy to come back in. When I come back to Miami, I look at the customs of the United States, okay, I'm looking for the person who I believe most looks like an Anglo-American. Yeah. All right? Got a friend of mine who takes a view and says, I want to find someone
7: who's African-American. Because that's the person who he thinks is going to be less hostile, and so you know, these little fine calibrations that one makes, as you, you know, modify and adjust you, know, how do you get back in? Yeah. And it, and so all the other things that you learn over the years, how do you get back in and try to minimize? That's what the pack forces. That's what I can do. But I picked. I picked the bag just around the office, and so, just grab my arm. Okay, I'm alive. Change of shit. Yeah. So woman comes in and she could have
6: been calling Moran and said, oh hell. <laughs> <laughs> and she was fine. She was fine. I didn't know yeah. She not in Cuba. She right there. So. <laughs> See, I avoid the ones from Iowa because
2: I figure they're going to be the ones that they're the ones that say, so what were you doing in Cuba? You know, with the American flag and yeah. patriotism means don't defy, you know, that sort of thing. So those are the ones actually that I
4: avoid. <laughs>
1: Well, I, I would actually want to shift terms a little bit, I, I maybe break protocol. I actually, I had a question of, of the first panelist that I didn't get to answer. Ask. <laughs> so, I, I hope I don't. <laughs> this, so this has to do with the politics of my you know country that I have worked in for so long, uh, Bolivia and uh, Evo Morales and this, the emergence of uh, Chavez and, and the movement towards socialism and also all of that, and I was just curious of, of, of the Cuban specialists here, uh, the extent to which there is a, at all a kind of orientation towards Chavez. I mean, is, how seriously connected are there? It seems to me there is many conflicting interests from Venezuela, Ecuador, uh, Bolivia, uh, Cuba, uh, and, and I'm wondering in terms of the, the issue that maybe you were mentioning, if the oil bills come in, then this policy of the U.S. becomes irrelevant because there will be these obviously flows of capital that uh, the U.S. and some sense can be work it's a circuit you're outside the circuit you no longer needed in some sense even though you're still threatened by it I mean do you think the, there is any kind of an emergent uh, alliance that actually strengthens this or is this of convenience I mean it strengthens the notion that uh, like Chavez says the you, you know, us. is irrelevant basically you know and and Evo Morales says it's irrelevant to our needs and they're pulling out of the World Bank just recently uh, saying you know this is yeah. an irrelevant institution I mean is there do you, is that a kind of a serious sense in uh, in your feeling that this is a kind of a, a movement, a feeling that there isn't other forms of solidarity and we don't really need to, to be that concerned with the capital flows out of the Anglo-American side?
7: Look, I, I think that uh, US standing in Latin America has never been so low. Uh, Castro has survived, as I was saying earlier, everything that we've thrown at him and come out of it uh, uh, doing well. I, I mean physically may not be mm-hmm. politically uh, doing well. And uh, Gabriel Morales and Chávez and yes, this alliance. The relationship uh, between Cuba and Venezuela, I think, is very important. And Ecuador now going in. Uh, Argentina, Argentina and uh, uh, Lula in Brazil, more modern, but even there. Good relationship with Cuba, fairly good relationship uh, with Chavez. Everything is moving against us uh, in in Latin America at this point. Not, not everything, but the general trend is against us in Latin America, and I don't think that that, uh, that, that will end uh, that even with the election of a new of a new president we've lost too much ground. And I'm uh, saying that you talk to Cubans now, and, uh, there was time when they weren't going really to came into this, but they did value. They saw a real value in uh, renewed relations. Uh, at this point, yeah, they'd like that. It's, it's fine. But it's it's not anything now that kind of anything like it the importance that that it once was. Not to get into an argument with Blue, I don't agree on uh, the US invading if they strike oil. I I might have been worried about that uh, some years ago, but Mm -hmm. at this point, uh, given uh, what's happened in Iraq and the rejection on the part of the American people of this kind of approach to things, I don't think that uh, that will happen as they bring in that oil field in Cuba. I think American public opinion would be too strongly uh, against it. American oil companies will be pressing in the other direction to get in, to get in and start drilling in, uh, in Cuban waters. So I, I, I understand where Lou's coming from. i had some concerns on that score myself some years back, but not anymore. And I think if the oil field uh, comes in, it simply really just points up uh, the the vacuity of U.S. policy. I mean, here we are standing to one side while Cuba becomes a major oil
4: producer. That would be the irony, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't, wouldn't you have anxiety then for having two
1: powerful oil producing countries, Venezuela and of course Bolivia <laughs> with its gas, which yeah. it needs to get out somehow, but as a sort of a nexus of natural resources that then would cause great anxiety potentially politically in the, in the US uh, yeah. given our current uh, energy policies. So I'm wondering how, uh, you, you know, in other words, that's why I actually was raising yeah. the question of potential alliance with Chavez and this sort of an oil uh, yeah, and also- cartel. An American move against Cuba in those circumstances would
7: really cause a reaction throughout Latin America. Right, but, yeah, would be
1: very painful for us. Right. The only
7: other way is that um, the household across the island is moving, really, moving really disquiet, that Chalice is killed, and it's
6: the
7: Chavez. The shit is the fan roller. And the idea that this is continuing to blowing up. Right, right.
3: Experience being between academics and the Beltway. Uh, how much sway do academics have in Washington? Is there anything that we can effectively do? And, and do we have your email right so, so. there? Okay.
0: <laughs> um, so
3: there is your law case. But uh, do you, even your court case? Um, I mean, I guess I, I certainly sense. I mean, Lori's kind of commented that it seemed like this was a very kind of self-indulgent conversation. On, on the one hand, I am sympathetic to that. On the other hand, sometimes I feel like we are irrelevant to to politics and uh, have been marginalized. And I'm wondering, since you've been someone who's actually been able to go back and forth between real politics and and academics, and I wondered if you had any insight on the role of academics in uh, Washington. I
0: think if academics
7: can uh, organize, band together, uh, make their voices heard in a unified way, they can have impact. But uh, um, that's difficult to it's, it's very difficult for academics to, to do. And I, again, I'm so disappointed that no college or university signed to this that's, you know, mm. I say, so. Can I ask you, in terms of individual <coughs> academics, I
2: mean, what is at stake? Obviously, people are worried about what would happen to their employment, or what would happen. You know, I mean, they're worried about the repercussions. No, and no, that- I'm talking about the universities. Right, but I'm wondering the, about in the individuals. the they As individuals, the professors fine that
7: They, they do. But the universities, they're afraid of losing federal funding, offending you know, the federal government in some ways, to cut into their, <coughs> their
5: graduate. It's So, a fear uh, of losing the
3: license mm-hmm. it has
7: Very been a, something that
5: we have discussed here.
7: Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Is it also true? I mean, that there are fewer and fewer general licenses being granted to academic institutions. Uh, fewer yeah. general licenses being granted. This was sort of a rumor that was circulating, and I was wondering if fewer licenses
4: general licenses In, to yeah. academic institutional, institutional. institutional institutional licenses.
7: licenses. Yeah, well, the general oh. license for research is you yep. know, it's
0: there. You mm. might have to even apply for it. Mm. No, she means the institutional license. Institution. 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 The institutional license. She means for institutions, so that any of their students may go using yeah. the institutional license. Are yeah. there fewer of those? Uh, I don't know
7: whether there are fewer or not. We still have one. Hopkins has a license. We still have one. Uh, the yeah. dean insists on applying every year. I, I was against it. I said we should, we should send that and say under these circumstances, it's renewed every year, we don't use it, uh, but it's there. Well, yeah, we, a couple of professors have traveled
4: down and they, they can, but uh, most, we don't use it for students. But my understanding is that in recent years some schools have lost their, <coughs> their licenses, right? <coughs> no. mm. yeah. University of Arizona I think yeah. was one of them.
5: The license? I don't
1: I don't know. Do you? Do what? They don't renew. I think it's clear if you work in Cuba you cannot be risk averse <laughs> uh, and uh, it does it does go on though uh, I mean we do have uh, anthropologists here people that I know certainly from the University of Chicago who will be going so of course we all know that these exchanges uh, are continuing and we only hope that we can kind of make that connection much more dense and to both informal and formal means but um, so rather than hopefully not take an apocalyptic view of it, uh, that uh, there will be change, as has as been expressed here. We hope in the next uh, couple of years, and, and that we can perhaps maintain some continuity. That's what I saw when I was director here. It was very difficult. Again, the expectation is you get a license, and then it's taken away. And you can never, as you know, any academic. It's very difficult to plan research. Uh, if you never know. And it's, it's wonderful to have several backup plans, but it's very difficult for any graduate student to have three different dissertations in mind to go to Cuba and actually be able to mobilize and get any one of those uh, done. So it is very, very difficult. But uh, again, we hope that uh, we all take it forward and, and continue. Um, are there any uh, more commentary? This has been a very, very long and very fruitful sessions here, uh, and uh, I, I think we're all appreciative of everyone Uh, passion uh, and persistence, Uh, and Josh, if I'm not mistaken, there is a reception at some point. I don't know if it's set up yet. It was supposed to be right around 7, right around around 7, so uh, if there's no other comments or questions here for panelists, uh, I think we can reconvene for convivial uh, session and continue the conversation uh, at the reception, and thank you to our two distinguished panelists uh, again.